Last week, we talked about blind Bartimaeus and how Bartimaeus was setting the stage for today, for Palm Sunday, for this triumphal entry. Remember, he was the first person, at least in Mark's Gospel, to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of David. He is the King that was prophesied to come, the Messiah. And and that's sort of been a theme as, as we've looked. You remember the very first verse of Mark, Uh, Mark tells us his purpose in writing to show to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the servant king who has come to redeem the world. And so who is Jesus has been one of those things that we've talked about, that, that Mark is trying to show us that, and that theme really comes to a head in today's passage of Scripture. You know, Jesus was proclaimed by Peter to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Bartimaeus cried it out publicly for the first time. But there was still a big question, what kind of Messiah would Jesus be? What kind of Messiah was he? What had he really come to do? And Mark shows us that in this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 11, that Jesus is the king, Jesus is the priest, Jesus is the prophet. That Jesus has come as the culmination, as the ultimate example of all three of those Old Testament offices. Those were the only three Old Testament offices to which somebody could be anointed. You could be anointed as the king. You could be anointed as a priest. You could be anointed as a prophet. Jesus is all three of those. Uh, So let's look at this passage of Scripture. And we've heard it several times Today already, uh, different translations or different versions. Um, I'm not sure which uh, gospel that was. That uh, Maybe it was a, a mix of both that Matt used for our responsive reading. But we're going to read it in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, where we see that Jesus is the king and we see the king's welcome. So let's look at this together. When they approached Jerusalem, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. He sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spread leafy branches out from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The first thing we see about this king's welcome is the preparation that was made for the king. Now, as as Kelly mentioned, you know, when you've got somebody famous coming in, there's a lot of preparation, especially if you're the president or the governor or the king. There's all kinds of preparation that goes before their arrival. And we notice in these first eight verses that both Jesus made preparation for his entry into Jerusalem, but the people also prepared to welcome Jesus in as their king. In our New Testament reading this morning, we heard the conversation between Jesus and Pontius Pilate about whether he was the king of the Jews. Was Jesus the king of the Jews? And what did that even mean? And Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. 
If it were, His followers would be fighting and dying for Him. But Jesus was a different kind of king. He came to bring in a different kind of kingdom. One, not where He sends out armies to fight and die for Him, but one where the king himself leaves His royal throne and He fights and dies for His people. Jesus demonstrates here the uniqueness of His kingship and His kingdom as He rides into Jerusalem, not in a limousine, not on a big fancy war horse, but in a very unusual manner. I want us to notice two things about the animal that Jesus chose to ride on. One, it was an animal that had never been ridden. Now, this was a stipulation in the Old Testament law for any sacrifice. You brought an animal to be sacrificed to the Lord, it had to be the first fruits. It had to be an animal that was unused, that was new, that was without spot or blemish. It couldn't be previously owned. It had to be new. It had to be something unridden, unused. It hadn't had a, had a yoke put around its neck and worked. And this foreshadows, by Jesus riding in on that kind of a donkey, He is foreshadowing what He has come into Jerusalem during this Passover week to become. He will become the ultimate Passover lamb. He will be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. But not only was it an animal that had been unridden on, it was the cult of a donkey. Now, other Gospels tell us specifically it was the cult of a donkey. Now, it was customary for a conquering king, if somebody had, you know, say it was Rome, and they had conquered a region or a city, it was typical for the, the, the leading general or even the king, maybe even Caesar himself, to come riding into that vanquished city and if he came riding in on a white war horse, it was a symbol to the people that he was there with a sword in his hand. He was there to judge. He was there to destroy. He was there to take it by force. But if the king rode in on a donkey, it meant he was coming in peace. Now, as you can imagine, in the ancient world, that part didn't happen very often. They mostly rode in on white war horses. But there is an example in the Old Testament of this king riding in on a donkey, and that's when David anoints his son Solomon to be his successor. And after Solomon was anointed as king, David had Solomon put on his own donkey, and he paraded through Jerusalem to demonstrate to the people that Solomon had come to the throne peacefully that David had given him this place of succession. He didn't come in there and take it by force. Building on that imagery, Zechariah prophesied the coming Messiah with this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so that's how Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. So we see the preparation for the king, but then we see the whole point of it all, the praise to the king, the celebration of King Jesus. The people, they would prepare for a king's arrival. If, if, if they knew a king was coming, just like if we knew the president was coming through or the governor or somebody was coming through, they would prepare for the king's arrival. And in that day, they would do it by laying branches and clothes, kind of putting out the red carpet for him to ride on. And they would praise the king as their righteous Savior, coming to save them from their enemies, coming to save them politically or economically. But on this day, the crowd on this Palm Sunday, they praised and welcomed Jesus as the King of kings, the Son of David, who had come to ascend to the throne of Israel. They praised Him as the long-awaited and promised Messiah, 
And Jesus didn't come to judge. He didn't come to destroy. He came in peace to save and restore. And so he came in on a donkey. John 3.17 talks about this. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now that's the first coming of Christ. That's how Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But Jesus will come back again someday. And when Jesus returns, it's going to be different. The Bible tells us at the end of time when Jesus comes back, He won't come back as a meek lamb, but a roaring lion. He won't come back as a, as a humble king riding on a donkey to die for our sins. He's already done that. He's already accomplished that. Now when Jesus comes back again, He will ride from heaven as the king victorious on His white war horse. He will come on that white horse and He will come to judge the world. Listen, Jesus came the first time to provide the means for salvation. He came to give all of us an opportunity to receive the grace of God, to enthrone Him as the King of our lives, to be the Savior of our sins. But when He returns, He will come and judge us based on whether we receive that gift. He will come to judge whether or not we freely accepted that invitation for Him to be the Lord and Master of our lives. Revelation 19 describes this return where Jesus would come on, it says, a white horse. And it says that He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, He judges and wages war. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah who came to save, who came to die for our sins. And someday he will come and hold all people accountable to whether or not, like the people of Jerusalem that day, did we welcome him into our hearts as the King of our lives. I pray that you have done that this morning. I pray that you have welcomed Jesus into your life as the King, as the Lord and Savior of your heart. And I hope that you are praising Him every day, not just with your lips, but with your life. Jesus is the King. And we've seen the King's welcome. But next we see the priest. Jesus is a priest. And He comes to do the priest's work. Let's look at... We're going to skip a couple verses. Let's look at verse 15. So this is the next day. It says, they came to Jerusalem and went into the temple and they began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And while he was doing this, he was teaching them. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. The priests work. Jesus, yes, he came as a peaceful king of salvation. He came as that ultimate Passover lamb. But he also came as the righteous priest to judge and cleanse God's holy temple. And we see here first that he cleansed the temple of corruption. The temple had an inner corruption that Jesus came to cleanse. Now Mark gives us a very vivid description 
of the corruption that had invaded God's house. The temple had become a place where religious goods and services were bought and sold. Now think about that. The house of God had become a place where the people thought about the worship of God in terms of religious goods and services that you would buy, that you would sell. In other words, the worship of God had been commercialized, had been mass-marketed. It became a production. One of the people guilty of doing this were the shopkeepers. Now, the outer courts of the temple were being used as a shortcut. Not only were they setting up shops there, but it was a shortcut for people to kind of get from one shop to the next or for, or for the, the, the marketers, the, the merchants, to be able to kind of restock their shelves. They were desecrating God's temple for the sake of convenience and commerce and consumerism. And they were neglecting what it was rightly consecrated to do, and that is to worship the Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth. And the people of God that, that did want to worship, that were coming to worship, they're being taken advantage of. By the dove sellers, for example. Now, you may remember when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to Jerusalem to dedicate him. And when they brought him, they had to bring doves. Doves to, to sacrifice, to make that appropriate sacrifice at his dedication. Now, the Old Testament law made allowance for doves to be brought instead of lambs for those who were poor. The poor might not be able to afford a lamb, but they could at least afford a couple of doves. This was something God had put into the law as a way of mercy for those people who were poor. Now, scholars tell us, looking back at documents in history and in archaeology, that at the time of Jesus, these dove sellers were charging exorbitant prices. So here they were profiting off of something that was meant to benefit the poorest of the poor. Money changers were even worse. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the law prescribed that you brought your offering. You brought your offering to, to God. And by the time of the New Testament, uh, you, you know, coins had been invented. Coins were becoming more predominant. So people would bring coins, maybe instead of, you know, barley or instead of uh, an animal. They would bring money to support the work of the temple. And they had these, these you know, brass coffers in the temple that you could come and put your money into. You might remember the story of the, the widow's mites, you know, and Jesus talks about she put in all that she had, but yet all these wealthy people that would come and they would, instead of bringing a $100 bill, they'd bring it all in pennies, right? So they could just dump it in there, make a lot of noise, say, look at me, look how generous I am. And Jesus criticizes that. Well, that, that coin that you would put in that coffer had to be a temple coin. The, the Roman coins, other Gentile coins, they were considered unclean, Right? Jews didn't want Gentiles in their houses. They certainly didn't want Gentile money in their temple. So you had these money changers. And their job was when you brought your Roman denarius, you would give that to them, and they would exchange it for a shekel for the temple coin. And you would take that temple coin, you'd put it in the temple. Well, these money changers were taking advantage of that prescribed coin, and they were giving people less shekel in return for the denarius. And they were profiting off these people, profiting off the worship of God in a very unjust and in a very unethical way. God's house had become a place of greed, not generosity. It was about material gain, not spiritual growth. And Jesus was infuriated at this inner corruption, these abuses, this misuse of God's temple. And so he acts out in righteous indignation. John's Gospel tells us that he made a whip and used a whip to chase these money changers out of the temple. 
He cleansed the temple of this inner corruption. But then he restored it. He restored it as a place of prayer for all people. You might remember in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham and Sarah to be the father and mother of a mighty nation. God said this. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. After God then rescues Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt, there at Mount Sinai, God called them to become a nation of priests. They were to represent His glory, His holiness, and His love to the nations. God's heart has always been for all the nations, for all the peoples, for all the ethnicities on earth. Now the outer court that I mentioned before, where they had set up all of these tables to sell doves and to change money, and they were using it as a shortcut. The outer core there, you can see in that diagram, is the biggest part of the Temple Mount, the biggest part of that complex. That's where the Gentiles could come. That was the only place in the Temple where the nations were welcome and permitted to come and to worship God and to pray. The very ones to whom Israel was called to be priests and a blessing were being pushed out for the sake of their own convenience and profit. The people of Israel were, were, were shoving the nations out of the temple. One commentator put it this way, with the conversion of the court of the Gentiles into basically a bazaar, with all of its noise and commotion and stench, they were deprived of the only place in the temple where they could worship. By clearing out the traitors, Jesus literally and symbolically provided a place for Gentiles, for the nations in the house of God. Now, as Jesus does this, he quotes from Isaiah 56. We heard part of that this morning as our Old Testament reading. And in Isaiah 56, he talks about two groups of people who were being excluded from the communal religious life of the Jews. They were eunuchs and Gentiles, or foreigners. Let's look together at that, at, at Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 7. Isaiah says, No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to become His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, eunuchs were excluded from the religious life of the Jews because they could not produce further descendants of Abraham. They were like a dried up tree. They were unable to pass on that Abraham blessing to their children. Yet Isaiah said that they were granted a place in the kingdom of God. And they would be given a name that would last forever that would be better than any descendants. Of course, Gentiles, by very definition of being a Gentile, you could not be a child of Abraham. Yet they would love 
serve and worship the name of the Lord in God's house, enjoying it as a house of prayer. So by quoting this passage, Jesus was reminding the people there and telling us today that God's heart has always been for all people, for all the world. The Jews often overlook passages like this. And there are many of them, many passages that talk about the Messiah being the king of all nations and all the world, talking about the the nations would come to Jerusalem for healing and to worship the Lord and to be taught the the word of God from Jerusalem. And the Jews of Jesus' day, they they like to kind of brush all that under the rug. They they weren't interested in that. And so Jesus' priestly action of cleansing the temple, of this corruption so that all people could feel welcome to come to know, love, and serve God, it should make us ask us ask ourselves about our own attitudes about church. What are our priorities and perspectives when it comes to worship? It's so easy to look at the Jewish people of Jesus' day and be like, wow, those people were awful. What a terrible thing to do to the temple. What a terrible way to treat people trying to come and, and learn about God. But what about us? Have we corrupted worship? Have we corrupted church with a consumeristic attitude? Do we act like the church is a country club there to cater to our preferences and our wants? Maybe we come to church with a consumeristic attitude. That we're here, it's like a store you come to to buy your religious goods and services. You know, to have your weddings, to have your funerals, to have your graduation recognitions, to to come and have all these different things and to feel good and to to learn about Jesus and you go home and you live the rest of your life till the next Sunday where you can come and get another dose. Is that how we act? Are we only interested in what we can get out of church? Or do we share Jesus' burden for the nations, for our neighbors, to reach those who are far from God and help them come near? How often do you ask yourself, how often do you consider what our community thinks about First Baptist Thompson? How often do you think about that? Does the people around us look at our church as a house of prayer that's open to them? Do they see this as a place where they can come with their questions about God, where they can come to get to know who Jesus is, where they can come and give their faith, their life to Jesus and grow in their faith and, 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 and develop and serve Him? Or do they see us as a closed group? The big white church on the corner. How does our community see us? Do you strive to make our church a place where anybody could come in and feel welcomed and loved and wanted? Listen, may we never be guilty of getting in the way of anybody coming to faith in Christ. May we never be guilty of putting unnecessary obstacles in the way of people turning from their sin and putting their trust in Jesus. Jesus came as the King. Have you welcomed Him into your heart? Jesus came as a priest to pave the way, to open up the way for us to come to God. And sometimes that means He's got to clean out the crud from even within the church. Because we block the ways and we get in the way and our egos get in the way and our pride gets in the way and our comfort and preferences get in the way of letting other people come to know Jesus. Have you let Him do that cleaning, purifying work in your life? The third, we see that Jesus is the prophet. 
And he came with a warning. Now, we're going to look at these verses that really bookend this, this cleansing of the temple, and we'll understand why. These are, these are intricately connected. Let's look back at verse 12. The next day, so the day after Palm Sunday, so on Monday, the next day, when they went out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he, you know, and, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So he curses the tree, and his disciples heard it. Okay, and then we have the cleansing of the temple. We pick it back up in verse 20. Early in the morning, the next morning, so Tuesday morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. We've seen that Jesus is the King who came in peace to save the ultimate Passover lamb who died for our sins. Jesus is the priest who cleanses and restores God's house to its purpose. And Jesus is God's prophet, warning of impending judgment for those who do not accept him as king and priest. And we see that just as Jesus cleansed the temple of inner corruption, here he curses a fig tree for outer fruitfulness. He's concerned about the inward corruption of the church and the outward fruitlessness of this tree. Now, trees in Jerusalem generally aren't fully leafy until March. And a fruit tree like a fig tree is not going to start producing fruit until June. So why did Jesus expect fruit from this fig tree? It seems a little unreasonable. It'd be like me going up to Chick-fil-A today and being mad that I can't get a chicken sandwich today and cursing them for it. Jesus should have known that this fig tree wouldn't have any fruit on it. Was Jesus just hangry? What's going on here? Well, keep in mind, this is basically an enacted parable. Jesus is picking up this ancient prophetic tradition. You especially see this from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel, where they would enact these object lessons, these, these physical parables. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind the context, the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple and the condemning of the tree are connected because they're both symbolic of God's judgment on Israel's spiritual condition. Both are about Israel. And Jesus is making the point that it's because Israel had become inwardly corrupt that they were now outwardly fruitless. That's the reason. Now, the tree, it looked so promising because it was full of leaves. It looked like it was full of life, but it was fruitless. And Mark calls attention. He he says the fact that this was not the season for figs. He's letting his readers know that this is symbolic. Jesus is trying to make a point here. Prophets, as I said, they use these kind of parables to convey God's judgment, to warn God's people, and in that spirit, Jesus uses this parable to convey three lessons. Three lessons we're going to look at very quickly from the fig tree. The first is that fruitlessness is sin. Fruitlessness is sin. In the Old Testament, a fig tree was a symbol of Israel, of their peace, of their security, of their place as the people of God. Hosea 9.10 is an example of that. 
God says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig trees. So when Jesus looks for early fruit on this fig tree and finds none, he cursed it as a way of saying that God no longer saw Israel as his primary tool to fulfill his purposes in the world. And Israel had done this to themselves. They had brought this on themselves. The Jewish religious system had plenty of leaves. It looked great from the outside, but there was no fruit. It had all the outward signs of piety, the fasting and the rituals and the praying and the tithing and and all the sacrifices, all the the, the cleanliness codes, the, the foliage of the Pharisees and Sadducees offered so much promise, but no fulfillment. And just as this figless tree was incapable of satisfying Jesus' appetite, so the Jewish religious system was incapable of satisfying the people's spiritual hunger. It couldn't. Now, years before this, John the Baptist used some similar language to warn the people of Israel. Matthew 3.10, he says the axe is already at the root of the tree. He's saying that Israel was fruitless. And so the axe was at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. They didn't heed John. They didn't heed Jesus. Jesus uses similar language in several of his parables. He's making the point that the people of Israel really had cursed themselves. Just as Jesus cursed this tree, they've already cursed themselves. And the temple was evidence. The temple was so fully and stubbornly fruitless and full of empty religious works and words. And in a few decades, it would be cut down by Rome. The axe was at the root of the tree. And in A.D. 70, Rome would come and cut it down and throw it in the fire. Not a stone would be left standing of that beautiful temple. God always condemns willful fruitlessness. He always condemns willful fruitlessness. He did it then, and we'd be fools to think that He doesn't now. He won't stand for it. And without Jesus, we wither. We might look good to others, but we will bear no fruit for Christ's kingdom. Without Him, our roots dry up, we wither, and we're useless. Jesus explicitly talks about this in John chapter 15. He talks about how how the Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine, and we're the branches on the vine. And He says that those branches that produce fruit, He's going to care for, He's going to prune, He's going to tend to it so we'll be even more fruitful. But those branches that are fruitless will be cut off and thrown into the fire because they're good for nothing. John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you, unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. What fruit are you producing for the kingdom of God today? Are you being fruitful? Or are you settling for religious leaves that look good on the outside? They give the appearance to others that you've got a strong relationship with God, but really, you're rootless, you're fruitless, because you don't have a deep abiding relationship with God. Is that where you are today? Or are you cultivating 
your walk with Christ? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you feeding your heart? Are you nurturing your soul? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to bear fruit in your life? Where do you stand in your fruitfulness for Jesus? Because fruitlessness is sin. Secondly, he tells us that faith can move mountains. Now, on the surface, it's like, well, he's shifting topics. He's just kind of all over the place. How are these two things related? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus links answered prayer to abiding in Him and bearing fruit. Here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus just called the temple a house of prayer. So having a robust, powerful prayer life is a sign that we're abiding in Jesus. It's one of the ways that we can bear fruit. James 5.16 tells us that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God is flowing through them. They're bearing fruit. They're pleasing the Father. They're fulfilling the joy of Christ. When we are righteous, yes, our prayers will be powerful and effective. Now, here in this verse, when Jesus talks about the mountain, if anybody says to this mountain, it's kind of like you know, Peter's amazed at the fig tree. Jesus says, that's nothing. You could say to this mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. Now, I think that because of where they were coming from Bethany down to Jerusalem, he was probably looking over at the Herodium. The Herodium was a mountain that Herod the Great built. There was literally a hill that he moved because he liked the view better, you know, something like that. So he moves this hill and he builds it up into a little mountain and it's flat on the top. He puts a palace up there. And I think Jesus was looking at that saying, you could say to this mountain, be moved, and it'll be, it'll be moved. Just with your words, if you have faith. The mountain symbolizes an insurmountable obstacle, a problem, a trial in our lives. And Jesus says that if we have faith in God, not faith in our own faith, not faith in our feelings, not faith in our works of religiousness, but true faith in God, informed by His Word, He says, you can move that mountain. In John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you remain in Me, and My words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. It's very similar to what he says right here in Mark 11. When we have true faith in God, based on the promises of His Word, not that I could go out here and ask God to give me a sports car and it's going to appear in my yard tomorrow, not that I could pray for Tennessee to come out and be number one this year, nothing's impossible with God, but that, that's not what that's about. When I am praying in faith based on the promises found in God's Word, and when I'm abiding in Christ and bearing fruit, God will answer our prayers and help us overcome the obstacles we face. Now you may be saying, David, I don't really experience that kind of victorious Christian life. Or you may be sitting there thinking, I, I can't really think of any prayers of mine that Jesus has answered. But maybe you need to ask yourself whether you're abiding in Christ. Maybe you need to ask yourself, am I saturating my mind and my heart with His Word? Am I praying in accordance with God's will as revealed in the Bible? Am I bearing spiritual fruit and faithfully abiding in Jesus? The power and effectiveness of our prayer is intricately tied to whether we are abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit for Him. Fruitlessness is a sin. Faith can move mountains. And the third lesson which really addresses one of the obstacles that can get in the way of our answered prayers and our fruitfulness. The third lesson is that fellowship requires forgiveness. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus linked prayer with forgiveness. In the model prayer 
Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't just pray for our own forgiveness, but that we would forgive other people who have wronged us. In James 5, the, the, the passage about the powerful and effective prayer of a righteous person is mentioned right alongside confessing our sins to one another. If we want to bear fruit, if we want to have faith that can move mountains, we must forgive others as Jesus has forgiven us. Those are all three so interconnected with each other. You can't separate them. Fruitfulness, faith, and forgiveness. Are you allowing an unforgiving spirit to rob you of a closer walk with God, of of a closer fellowship with other believers? Are you allowing unforgiveness towards someone to block your prayers? Who would Jesus ask you to leave your gift at the altar and to go make right with today? Who would Jesus ask you to extend the same grace and mercy toward in your life as God has extended toward you? Our look at Jesus as the king who rescues, the priest who cleanses, the prophet who warns. It ends with a question for each of us. What will you do with Jesus? Now we're going to pick this up in verse 27 next week where the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they confront Jesus. You know, that the crowds welcomed Jesus in without question. They didn't question his authority. Not the Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders. No, they're incensed at Jesus. And they want to know, by what authority are you coming in to cleanse the temple as if you're a priest? By what authority are you riding into Jerusalem as if you're a king? They didn't accept Jesus as the king or the priest. And his prophetic message was falling on deaf ears with the religious leaders. And so in next week's passage, Jesus will force them to answer the question, Who am I? Where am I? Where do I get that authority? And of course the Pharisees and scribes, they all, you know, they play it safe. They try to be as noncommittal as they can, but Jesus sees and knows their hearts. Today Jesus sees and knows your heart. And He demands the same thing from you. Who do you say I am? Tell me, who am I to you? Am I just a religious figure? Am I just a great teacher? Or am I your Lord and Master? Am I the Savior of your heart? Tell me, who am I to you? What choice will you make about Jesus today? Will you submit to His authority as your Lord and your Master? Or will you reject Him for your own authority? Or for the authority of the world? Will you try to remain neutral toward Jesus because you're afraid of what other people might think or say or do? There is no neutral about Jesus. You either accept Him or reject Him. You're either for Him or against Him. Either He is the Lord of your life or He's not Lord at all. Who is Jesus to you today? And I caution you, don't delay in your answer. It's like Bartimaeus last week, sitting on the side of the road to Jericho. Jesus passed by never to come that way again. Jesus may be passing by you today, never to come your way again. The axe is at the root of the tree. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of decision. Today is the day of rededicating your life. Don't delay. Whatever God is speaking to your heart, if Jesus is the king of your life, respond. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we praise you and welcome you as King. King of kings and Lord of lords who have come to bring salvation and peace to the world. 
We know that you are the true and high priest, the only mediator between God and man, the one who came to prepare a way for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God. We know that as your people, those of us who have professed our faith in you, you're the priest who cleanses our church and cleanses our worship and purifies our hearts that we may daily become more and more conformed to your image. And Jesus, you are the prophet whose words of warning we should heed with utmost urgency. Father, whatever you've spoken to this message, through your holy word, to these people today, here in this room and and in other places, Father, I pray that they would obey and they would respond in faith and that they would bear much fruit. In the name of Christ we pray.